Support for this show is brought to you by Instill. Our friends at Instill really understand what it means to build and manage relationships in a holistic and human-first way. The platform's advanced UX design and real-time analytics, smooth donor management to make it easy for you to connect every supporter to the impact of your work. To learn more, head on over to www.instill.io backslash Mallory. Generally, 75% of the fundraising population are female, and you go to gala events with fundraisers, and often I hear complaints afterwards of, I've been sexually harassed, what do I do? You arrive, and they'll look at you and say, oh, you look much prettier than I expected. Or you'll stand next to him, and you'll feel that hand gently just tuck your lower back, perhaps. It would never happen to another man but somehow it's acceptable with a woman. And the women feel as fundraisers that if they speak up, that money is going to be withdrawn. Welcome back to episode 35, part one of What the Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. Today's episode, or really two-part series, is quite heavy. We are going to be talking about sexual harassment in fundraising. There is explicit content and potentially triggering storytelling, so I want to make sure you listen to today's show in the right place, mentally, physically, and emotionally. For this episode, I have the incredible honor of interviewing Dr. Anne Olivarius, who is recognized around the world for her pioneering work in representing victims of sexual violence, sexual harassment, and discrimination. Her firms in the US and UK have achieved landmark settlements for survivors of abuse and successfully coordinated international efforts to bring people to justice. In part one, we get to hear about Anne's coming of age and the background stories that led her to birth the legal case for sexual harassment and coin the term date rape. You will also hear about Dr. Olivarius's experience as a philanthropist, as a part of Women Moving Millions, and the intersection that involvement has created regarding her awareness around different money stories and how deep they go, even sometimes to protect people from being held accountable when they have caused harm. We also talk about some of the gender dynamics and historical foundational elements of the funder-fundraiser relationship that make it particularly vulnerable for sexual harassment situations. And we talk about some of the other forms of violence and racism in the sector, because as we know, sexual harassment is not the only form of harassment and abuse. And for some black, brown, Asian, and indigenous leaders in our community, sexual harassment pales in comparison to the racism they experience daily, sometimes inside their organization. At the same time, we know that sexual harassment is a huge issue in our sector and one that needs to be talked about in a bigger way. This episode came to be because of both my own lived experience, I'm a survivor myself, and because I regularly hear stories about sexual harassment from a donor or prospect in conversation with my clients and colleagues. And it finally hit me that while Me Too hit almost every other industry, we didn't really see a strong wave in nonprofit. Is it because we're afraid of losing the money? But is all money good? And is money the only point? These are some of the questions that I'm grappling with. 
This series is going to push you, make you uncomfortable, ask some hard questions, and give you some clear next steps, whether you have a complaint to file or your organization is looking to better support your staff and create more safety. Because there is so much in part one and part two, make sure you look at the timestamps and outline in the episode description to find what you're looking for. If you want to skip to the middle, which includes information about how to create organizational support for your fundraisers, what a non-disclosure agreement really is all about, when to file a claim, and more, then you might want to start at part two. But I highly recommend you dive in with us right now and hear Dr. Olivarius's amazing history, background work, and why the current fundraising norms do not prioritize the protection of fundraisers. So let's go meet Dr. Olivarius. Welcome, everyone. I am so incredibly honored to be here today with Dr. Anne Olivarius and We are going to be talking about some big topics, some heavy topics, but I think issues that are critical for us to be addressing. I know so many of my listeners are those who identify as women, so this issue is going to hit really close to home. So I really want to start, and Anne, just please introduce yourself, give us some background on your work. Thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you for having me, Mallory. I'm Anne Olivares. As Mallory has explained, I'm 66. I'm a British and American lawyer. I practiced in both countries all the time and hope to be continuing to do that for many, many more years, if not decades to come. I'm a civil rights, women's rights lawyer fundamentally. I have a deep background in finance and commercial contract work. I used to run the commercial department or the corporate law department at Sherman and Sterling, which is a major corporate law firm in Washington. I, I ran that department for some time. I came through Morgan Stanley and also Goldman Sachs and did mergers and acquisitions. So I'm very keen to know those basic things that have to do with businesses and markets and heavy conversations that are important to keep businesses stable and to keep the country growing. Since then, I've done that work. I still do some of that work in our contract negotiations and setting up businesses on both sides of the Atlantic. But certainly, we do a lot of women's rights work now and represent women particularly, and also men, the voices and people who are vulnerable. We represent them who have been abused, who are sexually discriminated against, racially trans discriminated against, where they're trying to give voice, trying to make the world a better place than what we found to make sure that equality really exists for everyone. We're far from that. It doesn't exist for everyone, but we're working hard to put laws on the books and to really make a positive difference. You know, I learned about your work reading British Vogue, this article that had been done really about your incredible history. Will you tell our listeners just a little bit about what has brought you to this moment from a passion perspective and how you really and why you really find yourself doing this critical work? As I said, I'm 66. So that means I came of age at a time when Women came of age, one might argue. It was a time when major educational institutions in the States and abroad took women. So I went to Yale, one of the early classes of women who went to Yale. Of course, these days, most kids say, oh, women didn't go to Yale. I mean, it's really (laughs) fascinating to see that the world has changed in that way. But when I came of age, we were just being allowed entry into those institutions. And when I got to Yale, what I saw was 
Lots of pictures of white men on the walls, big chairs for men. Kingman Brewster, who was president of Yale at the time and quite a distinguished intellectual figure. And he said in Bringing Women In, he said, Yale is here to educate a thousand male leaders every year. We will continue to do that. So the few women that they brought on, a couple of hundred, at first it's grown somewhat, but of course that crowded the institution. So all the housing arrangements got really very cramped. Mm -hmm. They divided the women. There were 12 residential colleges. So instead of taking women and maybe putting a great group of us together in a couple of colleges, they divided us up so that the men could have easy access to the women. It became very impolitic for a Yale man to have to continue to go to Vassar or some other place to find a partner, a girlfriend. No, you're supposed to find that person on campus. But we were just so few of us on campus. Mm. So it was a very interesting time. Of course, it was a time when there was legalized abortion, when there was legalized birth control. Certainly, I remember the day that Roe v. Wade was passed in 1973, and I was standing in the old campus, and I said to a faculty member, this is a really important day for women and for men. And he turned to me and said, Anne, no Yale woman has ever been denied an abortion. And I remember standing there thinking, okay, so there's a law and a life for some people, and there's a law and a life for other people. And at Yale, I guess the laws really didn't apply. So the whole aspect there was very freewheeling. It was a lot of sexual experimentation, no judgment about these things, a whole different world that I think even exists now. I think it was a very different time and place. But when I came of age, of course, that also meant that Male entitlement existed, male behaviors existed, and so it was really common for women to be having sexual partners with faculty members, administrators, and women weren't real comfortable, but it was clearly a passage forward. If a woman wanted to progress, then you needed a good letter of recommendation, you needed the care of someone who had power. And so we didn't have words like sexual harassment. But when I was with Gloria Steinem, once at a conference in 1974 at Wesleyan, I was in a room of, of almost maybe a thousand women, some men, and I said to them, how many of you have been raped? Not one person raised their hand. And then I said, okay, wait a minute. How many of you have been date raped? And almost every hand shot up in the room because the notion was date rape was a bad date. It was something that didn't really go the way I wanted, but hell, we didn't want to have the stigma of calling out ourselves as having been raped. About two years ago, I met with a Yale gynecologist and counselor, husband and wife team, the Sorrells. And they told me that when they were at Yale for many, many decades, they would ask everybody who came in to fill a questionnaire. And one of the standard questions for 30,000 women was what was your first act of sexual intercourse like? They were going through the files now to look back on those responses. And they said, now it was shocking because in the light of the Me Too movement, they would look at those responses and women were writing in words like a nightmare, horrible, forced, so painful. Words that were all in that genre. There were virtually none. He said, just a few, a couple that said joyous. Mm -hmm. There was very little lack of consent. There was no consent. It was not a positive experience. And that was also the Yale I went to. And that was the effect of that male culture, that very high-class male culture, where every woman at Yale could get an abortion, legal or not, but every woman at Yale was also subject to rape. Now, how many are raped and were raped? We know it's an epidemic. We know it's happening today. And certainly, 
When I was at Yale, I actually was strangled and raped by a man who is a doctor, Cal Hirsch. It's all over the press now, so I can talk about that. But when I went to the Yale police to explain it, they said, no, you knew him. And a Yale man wouldn't rape didn't exist. It wasn't a concept. So I coined the term date rape. Susan Brown Miller heard that and has now published it in one of her books, bless her, a really articulate writer. And then I went on and filed suit when I was a senior with a number of men, one man, a professor, and women for what we defined as sexual harassment. The term didn't exist. It was just scattered around in some early academic journals, but it had no power in terms of law and no conception. So we brought suit against a number of people at Yale and said that under Title IX of the 1972 Civil Rights Act, it's illegal for women to be not denied not only sports approach, because everybody looks at Title IX as a sports equality event, but this legislation also means that if you're sexually harassed, if you're not able to come in and walk the streets at night, like the men do if you're not allowed to access the facilities without having an approach sexually, then that's a violation of Title IX. That suit, Yale, postured around for a while until we were all just graduating. Only one woman was still at Yale when the suit went through. So I was removed from the suit, as were my other colleagues, because we no longer had standing to bring the suit. And then the judge found that our legal claim was actually viable, not for us because of technicalities in our suit, but we actually were able to birth that concept. And so now sexual harassment was due to this case, Alexander v. Yale, which I designed and organized. And that came about actually, ironically, because the Yale Corporation, which is the governing body of Yale, asked me to write a report on the status of women at Yale, because we hadn't been there that long. And it's when I went around and spoke to a number of women and men and said, what is your life like? We got these incredible amounts of reports of these women being essentially sexually harassed, using the term that we've derived and that we use today, but being forced, pushed, coerced, lacking consent to have a sexual relationship and not even calling it rape, not having the vocabulary, just feeling pressured to do something they didn't want to do and didn't have a good memory of. So that's my, my early days. After Yale, I applied for a Rhodes Scholarship and was able to get a Rhodes and went up to Oxford with a group, again, early years of women. And came to that place where I realized that I was really lucky. I came from not a terrifically intellectually ripe or abundant environment. There's very little money in my family. I'm one of five sisters. I've, I've, I've got four sisters. And education was not highly prized. I was blessed. I was able to come up of age at a time when there was the civil rights movement. There was the Black Panthers were active. The Catholic Church was at Pope John the Twenty Third. Women's rights were being discussed with Betty Friedan and the feminine mystique. Institutions were opening the doors to women. It was the beginning, but I felt that I was so lucky to get the benefits of a Yale education, of a Rhodes Scholarship, and my job in life, my moral obligation was to pay it forward. That I had to say thank you by making opportunities available for others. And the root discrimination in the world seems to me to be sexual. Women are still the underclass in every society across all sectors. Yes, better to be living in Iceland and you have a few more opportunities than in the Scandinavian countries, but essentially women are still underpaid for the work we do compared to what our male counterparts do. There's not really effective child birthing and raising elder care responsibilities. Women are still running their homes. We haven't really gotten very far on the key issues, and so we're trying now to bring legislation to bear. 
That said, the world has also changed in terms of online. We're very active in the cyber abuse area Mm -hmm. and online damage. We've been involved very much in bringing a revenge porn law on the books Mm -hmm. in Britain. We're working on changing the laws here under Biden so that if a person sends an intimate photo without the consent of that person, then the person who sends it without consent should go to jail, should pay damages. Mm -hmm. In Britain right now, we have a couple of thousand people in jail for that crime. And of that, a great number of them are women. So it's not just a gendered crime, primarily, but significant numbers of women who are doing jail time in Britain for sharing intimate pictures of another woman are women. So I just mentioned that it's not just a rah-rah girls, it's uh, we've got some bad girls too. Yeah, and I think at the beginning when you were talking about all of the different work that your firm does around abuse and sexual harassment being a part of the abuse, I think inside the nonprofit sector, we're going to be talking specifically about sexual harassment today, although abuse within the sector, particularly for black and brown leaders, there is a lot of women on women abuse that is happening inside the sector. So I think it's important to call that out in the ways that plays out in different pieces. I really agree with you. Somehow as feminists, we duck that and we shouldn't duck it because this is not just a male situation. Women are very much involved in this and we need to address that also. Yeah. So when I first reached out to you, I have to be honest, I was like, I might never hear back, but I just, I read this article, I have to talk to this woman. And you responded really quickly and really enthusiastically about having this conversation around or the way that sexual harassment plays out in philanthropy and in the nonprofit sector. So I'd love to just start with, what's your first gut reaction when I propose the topic of this conversation? And you have your own experience in the philanthropic space and knowing many of the dynamics at play. So maybe we just start there. All right. So I got your email and it brought a smile to my face because some years ago I joined something called Women Moving Millions. Mm -hmm. And that's, I would argue, actually the most powerful lobbying group to advance women's rights, girls' rights, and I think men's rights, because it all goes together. There are roughly 350 some odd members, and I'd say a good number are men, including I have a son, and he's a member. And to join, you have to prove that you're giving a million dollars as a minimum to advance women and girls. So that's the entry number. And then we're together around the world, and we work to advance legislation, goals for women, for girls, but also for men, because it all comes together. What I learned is that the topic of money, people don't want to talk about. You know, there's always those New Yorker jokes that there's a psychiatrist who says to a man, all right, tell me about your sex life. And he'll go on for weeks and weeks of therapy, paying lots of money to talk about his sex life. And then the therapist will say, and how much money do you earn? And the man will look at him aghast and say, are you joking? I'm going to answer? No, I'm not answering that question. And you see this throughout all the sectors. So some years ago, I had a wonderful Icelandic woman working with our firm, Hatla Gunnestadter, and she organized a grand conference in Reykjavik, Iceland, and she asked me to speak on this about all sorts of women. The greats were there like Catherine McKinnon, all sorts of talented women who had really been working hard to make the world a better place. And she said that my job was to talk about money. And I thought to myself, well, that's the dog assignment. <laughs> Thanks so much, Hotla, for giving me that topic. But I found that people were rivet about it. It's 
the topic that nobody wants to discuss. Nobody really wants to get into that. And of course, it's the excuse. If you're doing something that's going to make a lot of money, then okay, maybe you're not so concerned about what you're doing or how you're doing it or who you're doing it with and what are the consequences. You look at the money aspect. So I've come to this place legitimately by working on, by bringing important cases, earning my own money, and coming to a view with my own business that my business is based on the benefit that it's important to make money by doing good. So for instance, unlike most law firms, and many would argue ethically this is a problem for lawyers. I don't think so. But we take cases that we believe in taking. We take cases that we think move the meter, that we can win. Many times I've had to say to men and women, your case is true. I believe you entirely. I can't win that case right now. It's just not possible. I don't want to set a bad precedent. But we take cases, we fight hard, we've made a lot of money, and we put it back into our cases. So all of my philanthropy is in law and reinvesting in bringing cases that actually make constitutional import, that make new law in the books, that somehow advance this group. Mm -hmm. So money is a very interesting topic in that respect. You have to have a good regard for it. When it comes to money... You know, what people do for money, uh, and it's like this in fundraising, it's across the sector. It's, for instance, early on, we started suing the Catholic Church some years ago for pedophile priests. We would win our cases. And inevitably, the bishop, the highest ranking cleric in the Catholic Church, would come to me and say, you know, Anne, Father Joe, he's actually a good man. He promised us he wouldn't do this. And he's done it, but, I mean, really, we are a charitable institution. We do good works. Really, we shouldn't have to pay this amount of money. And typically, I would say something in response along the lines of your excellency, Father Joe went to 27 dioceses. We know he's touched at least 180 boys. We've had this kind of a case a number of times. And you just kept letting him do that. You were on notice. You knew. And there's not a concern I'm hearing in the church about the boys. There's no concern about them. And there's a sense of why should we pay them anything? And then they declare bankruptcy. And then the insurance companies say, well, these were, you've just proven, Anne, that these were intentional acts. So it's not covered on the insurance policies. They want to withdraw. Now we're suing the insurance companies and we're winning against the insurance companies. But again, it's the notion of money, money, money. We're good places. We, some months ago, were alerted by a client who came to us and told us that she'd been raped by the Karmapa, who is the heir apparent to the Dalai Lama. Now, I grew up in a poor Catholic family. And as I grew up and I had issues with the Catholic Church, I always privately thought, okay, Buddhism. Buddhism has got to have it hands down. It's a peaceful, loving people. They're kind and good. And now, of course, you know, we started researching because unlike some lawyers who file suits and do their research afterwards, we do the research first. Mm -hmm. We investigate entirely. We line up our ducks. And if we think we have a case we're going to win, we file the case just about to file the case against the Karmapa. But we've learned in the process that there are lots of reports. Again, they have to be certified as to truth, but there's lots of reports from women and men who claim that the Dalai Lama is actually protecting rapists in his circle. So the issue that I get now just before we file is, well, again, it's another advanced theory on money. If you bring the suit against the Karmapa so he cannot be the heir apparent to the Dalai Lama, then look at the geopolitical world mm -hmm. because you've got Tibet, Tibet, you've got China, India. They're all going to be fighting. The Dalai Lama keeps a certain peace. If you take out the Karmapa, if you expose the Dalai Lama, what happens? Is there going to be a geopolitical war 
Are people going to die? And that's another ramp up on the money issue. Do you really want to deflect what's good? Do you really want to do this? And of course, my answer is a firm yes. If these men are in their places and they're raping people routinely, and there's lots of complaints we've heard about the Karmapa being a serial rapist, we have to investigate it. A court has to decide if that's true. But certainly, there's a lot of evidence that suggests that that's a credible allegation. That's my job, is to bring people to task, to have people be accountable. And if the money that goes elsewhere, if he goes, he's not there, if there's a geopolitical problem, we have to confront that. But that's a different issue and shouldn't be sideswiped because of this. So money is a really, really big, big issue. And fundraising, of course, that gets very complicated because... Who are the fundraisers? Well, in the nonprofit sector, 75% are women. We know that. That's a fact. So what does this sector look like, this nonprofit sector? Who's donating? And who are the people who are trying to get the donations? Generally, right now still, it's really wealthy, older white men. They're used to having power, control. They're taking advantage of tax laws here in the United States to make sure that they get as much of their wealth protected in a way that suits them as possible. Very few of them really want to change the world. That's the PR, that's the public relations spin on the whole thing. But in actuality, what we see is that they hire excellent accountants, lawyers. We go in and we advise them on how to protect their wealth. And that's who's giving their money away. They're not really giving it away. They're putting it into safe vehicles, safe places. And if they give it to good causes, then they can get a lot of PR work, you know, publicity, really positive things said about them. It gives them a legacy that is honorable. And who are the people who are trying to get those donations? Generally, 75% of the fundraising population are female. These are women who don't have a lot of acquaintance typically with power or control. They're not well paid. And their job is to be nice. They have to be liked. And they're taught to go and try to get money from these older men, power and control is the currency of that brigade of older men who give their money away. And women are typically very good at securing that money. And you go to gala events with fundraisers. And often I hear complaints afterwards of, I've been sexually harassed. What do I do? You arrive and I'll look at you and say, oh, you look much prettier than I expected. Or you'll stand next to him and you'll feel that hand gently just tuck your lower back, perhaps. It would never happen to another man, but somehow it's acceptable with a woman. And the women feel as fundraisers that if they speak up, that money is going to be withdrawn. Perhaps the better thing to do is to document a record, to speak up, and to ask for a bigger donation because of it. <laughs> so, you know, I think we need to think really hard and long about that. And the notion that you shouldn't say anything just means that he will continue to do those behaviors when it suits him to do it. And is that how you want to get money? for good ends. And I personally don't think that's a good idea. It's interesting, the two examples that you gave around the lower back touch and being commented on your appearance is, I've experienced both of them numerous times in fundraising, but I've also experienced them numerous times in every element of my life. And I think one of the things that felt hard to me as a fundraiser, especially a young fundraiser, wanting to perform well, wanting to hit my fundraising targets, was how to draw a line around donor behavior that I perhaps wasn't drawing in other areas of my life? And what is the line? And why is it perhaps even more important that we are 
drawing it in a professional setting or an organizational setting like that than laughing off the person who makes a comment on the street. Talk to me a little bit about how you think about that. Yeah, this is where it gets really personal and hard. No one sexually harasses someone higher on the pole. It's always the reverse. And Mm -hmm. to keep that in mind and that a touch on your lower back, the comments about appearance, that's sexual harassment. That's what it is. It's looking on you, at you as a sexual object, not as a person with a mind that you're not there on a business for a business reason. At William Moving's Millions, we've had a session on this recently. We talked about professionalizing fundraising because so many women are in that role. You could say we're making friends, you're going to be the friends of someone. But why would they want to be friends with us? What's in it? What do they get? What do you get? What is the transaction? So it's really be clear about that transaction. And by professionalizing the norms of the transaction, that's something that will elevate fundraising and make a real big difference for those operating in it. So for instance, if there are guidelines, and so it's really clear in the approach to a donor, potential Mm -hmm. donors, that we say, okay, what do we do here? There are three really strong aspects that I think work when we advise people or if we have someone who's come to us who's been sexually harassed, sexually assaulted as a fundraiser, for instance. What we emphasize is that money must work for systematic equity. So we try to do things so it's racial, economic, political gender equity. So we try to support projects and businesses, for instance, that like gender impact investment or racial impact investing, something where there's really palpable good that can be monitored. You have to measure your philanthropic impact. Are you actually making a difference? Whatever are the issues that you're trying to get support for, they get really set out really clearly. And there's a commitment to that. And you get the person you're approaching to commit to these principles. So you're not just approaching saying, hey, you know, you like the Bahamas, it was just there. How's your wife? How do you like this dress? It's none of that chit chat. It's all professional chit chat, as you do for any business deal. So you talk about why are you there? What are you going to advance that suits that donor? How are you achieving to change things in the world? The other thing we try with Women Moving Millions, we look at the redistribution of power. So you try to share money now with people who are proximate to the issues that we care about. You can use it in community building, but you try to make sure that money just doesn't go to the top. It's not trickle-down economics. It's from the ground up. So you want to give money out to who? So that's really important. It's not just the issue, the, what's the product you're trying to support, but who gets it, who gets to be empowered in the process. And when you're having that empowerment talk with a donor, of course, it's going to be much easier to say, actually, this is not a date. And to be able to do that and pull that off in a way with grace mm. and style. And as women, we are educated every day to do that with grace and style, to deflect that notion. And the other thing that I think we emphasize with Women Moving Millions is that we have to be accountable. The donors have to be accountable and we have to be accountable. So I think paying the fundraisers more, actually achieving goals and publicizing those goals in a metric that can be measured and publicized is really, really good. It's got GuideStar now, which is, I think, still a pretty silly system. It's not real effective. We can really upgrade that and look at projects that really should have money going into it. What are we doing? Why are we doing it? We don't have a national conversation. We certainly don't have an international conversation. We're not doing that. Philanthropy is solving government's problems in a way that government used to solve the problems. Mm -hmm. 
but now philanthropy is solving those problems. So I hope that we can get a bigger conversation and not just to donate money, but actually to build programs that fundraisers can actually construct ideas. So there's a real place in fundraising now to have a different conversation with great integrity that can actually make a fundamental difference in huge ways that would affect the lives of millions and millions of people and set a standard in the world for America. So what's so interesting about what you just said is that inside my program, which is called the Power Partners Formula, the goal is actually to find individuals, corporate partners, foundations, where there's mutual benefit and alignment. Not that you aren't going to develop strong personal relationships with folks, but it is much more focused on you care about achieving blank. We care about achieving that too. Is there an opportunity and what would it look like for us to come together with our shared resources, assets, thinking about money as one asset, but not all of the assets. They're going to be nonprofits that intimately understand the communities that could be resources to addressing that problem. And then there are philanthropists who want to see that problem addressed. And so what does it look like when they find those power partnerships in a way that is really built on alignment? And I think what you're saying that I had never fully processed before is that it does actually shift the integrity of the entire conversation. So much in the nonprofit sector has been built around show me your Rolodex of friends who can give to our organization or come to our gala. So much has been, as people think about prospecting donors, focused on wealth first and power first. And it seems to me, and I'd be curious what you think about that, that when we do keep that at the forefront of our board conversations or internal fundraising conversations, those are only ever going to lead to maintaining power as it currently exists. Mm -hmm. And our only opportunity to shift it is to start prospecting funders from a place of alignment. I created this program because I was so uncomfortable with the power dynamic and I didn't want to show up to one more funder meeting where the only thing of value was money at the table. I was the one who needed the money. The donor was the person who had the money. I was just like, this can't be the only way. Power imbalances. You you just are a needy girl. Yeah. You you know. Yeah. Yeah. And as my maybe life changed in different ways, or I felt empowered in other elements of my life, my fundraising role felt so out of balance with who I was in these other moments. I felt like a strong leader of my organization. I felt strong in my romantic relationship, in my partnership, in my family structure. But then I would shrink in fundraising. And when I really started to get into that, why is this happening? And it was because of this massive power imbalance. And so I'd be curious to know how even hearing that sort of lands with you and what you think. It's the professionalization, I think, of fundraising. Mm -hmm. So this actually has got norms. It's got measurable characteristics. It's a very different world. It's a proper career. And it's a no-nonsense thing. It's not, hey, pretty girl, you know, I'll throw you a few dollars or I'll throw you a couple hundred million dollars. You just do for me what I need to have done. It's not like that. It's like being a doctor. You go to a doctor because you have a problem and you want to solve the problem. Mm. A donor's got a problem. A donor's got a lot of money. That donor doesn't want to die if they're smart with a lot of money that hasn't been allocated. You're offering an allocation. 
as a lawyer. People come to me and want estate planning. Right. They're there for a service. I know that they're getting something out of it, and I know what I can give. It's no different from your end. You may not have that particular accounting skill that I might have developed on an estate plan, sure, but you're finding a place where that person's legacy, their wealth can be protected, they can be seen to be grand, if they wish to be seen to be grand, or anonymous. But whatever they want, that can be made happen in death. You know, getting anything to be accomplished in death is a very tough thing. A fundraiser could actually provide something like that. And it may well be that the donor is happy to have a plaque on a wall or to have a building put up or a football stadium or maybe wants to develop the next AstraZeneca COVID drug. Who knows? That's individual. But to find that out and maybe to actually work with a person as a therapy skill, as a therapist would say, what do you really need from me? Mm -hmm. So let me see if I can give you that. Mm -hmm. It's a professional skill of accounting, of understanding legacy issues, opportunities, and structures. Who are the professionals you can bring in? Don't even from a doctor, maybe a general practitioner. Ah, but you've got an obstetrical problem. So I'm going to bring in that obstetrics doctor. Mm -hmm. Oh, and you've got an oncology issue that's come up. I have to bring that person in too. Doesn't make the general practitioner any less professional. Doesn't make the fundraiser any less professional to bring in the lawyer, the accountant. Mm -hmm. Okay. And I think seeing it as a compendium of really experts, it's a different mindset themselves, means they also have to be paid more for what they do. All right, I don't know where you're at right now. Some of you might still be cringing from some of what you heard. Others next probably hurt from nodding, while others might be sitting there stunned or angry. Wherever you're at, it's okay. You might not even agree with everything presented, but this show is about bringing to light important issues that need to be discussed. And I couldn't have asked for a more relevant and brilliant thought leader and activist than Dr. Ann Olivarius. There was a lot of wisdom shared in this episode, but I want to highlight her overview of three pillars of good money movement. One, she talked about how money needs to move and work for systematic equity, and we need to be measuring our progress towards those goals. Two, she looks at the redistribution of money to be shared with people who are proximate to the issues that they care about. She makes sure that money is not just going to the top. And three, She mentioned the need for both the organizations and the funders to be accountable. Two of the things she mentioned in terms of accountability were paying fundraisers more, and I would argue this is true for all nonprofit professionals, and achieving and publicizing goals in metrics that can be measured. I want to acknowledge the use of the term professionalization in relationship to the conversation about setting fundraising norms. Professionalism has often been problematic because it has been used to silence and marginalize people of color. But I believe we have the opportunity and that this is what Dr. Olivarius is suggesting, to redefine professionalism to create more inclusive, equitable, and safe work environments. All right, I know this is a lot to process, so head on over to malloryerickson.com backslash podcast to get access to all of the show notes, as well as a number of related resources about sexual harassment in fundraising. You'll also find more information there about Dr. Olivarius and how to connect with her and her firm. Thank you, as always, for spending this time with us today. I am so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. 
If you miss me between episodes or you want to talk about this content specifically, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. I hope to see you in part two of this series next.